Okay, let me tell you about Michael Buffer. He is an American ring announcer or MC. Okay, he's had a boxing match. Anyone into boxing here? No, 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 no me, but I, I, I did some research for this sermon. He's a ring announcer, and so he announces or introduces the boxer as he comes on the stage. And if you've ever watched a boxing match, the whole affair is, is, quite, a, is quite a hyped up event. Well, his most famous introduction, if you like, announcement was for a boxer, a well-known boxer, perhaps one of the greatest boxers of all time, people say, is, is a gentleman called Emmanuel Pacquiao. Has anybody ever heard of him? A Filipino? Okay, Emmanuel Pacquiao, yeah? Yeah, or well, they call him Pac-Man. Is his abbreviated name, Leovis knows him. And the introduction he gives him, it's just incredible how he hypes up and, and builds up the tension, you know, and, you know, and until finally Pac-Man comes on the scene, you know, bathing in all this glory. That was quite an introduction, wasn't it? I mean, how many titles does this guy hold? Well, the reason I show you that, and, and there's a reason behind the madness, Buffer, the announcer, is to Pacquiao what John the Baptist is to Jesus. You see, John the Baptist gives the most amazing okay, introduction anybody could give to a character. And yet it's not obvious. It's not obvious in the text because he uses far fewer words. But nevertheless, the, the introduction that John gives to Jesus is incredible. It's hidden behind some subtle words and it's what we're going to unpack together this morning. And by the end of this sermon, you'll feel like the next time you hear the announcement of Jesus, you'll be here thinking you're hearing about Pac-Man because you'll understand, I hope, something of the grandeur okay, of the event and the title and the announcement that John gives to Jesus. It's incredible. So that's where we're going. Come with me. I'm going to read a few verses to begin with to give some context to one Greg read. I'll reread them, not because there's anything wrong with how Greg read them, okay, because I thought you'd want them in a brummy English accent. So I'll do my best. Here you go. So our heading is the Lamb of God, and our subheading for the morning is John introduces to the world, the Lamb of God. I've abbreviated it on the screen for you, but the fuller version is John introduces to the world the Lamb of God. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. He goes, are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who do you, or what do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am unworthy, not worthy to untie. This all happened 
at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and this is the first time he said these words, look, the Lamb of God. Remember that. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. That was God's order, first to Israel, then to the world. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me God's Spirit spoke to him and told him that the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look! So it's a repeat again. The Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. This cost John. Actually, John was ready for the cost. Okay, so the disciples of John understood something about the significance of this title, significant enough to move away from their allegiance to John. Remember, they had been following John. They were John's disciples. John didn't tell them to leave him, but when, as soon as he introduces Jesus, something within them stirs them to follow Jesus. And we don't have time to look all that at all that this morning, but our focus is these words. Verse 29, verse 34, verse 35. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we caught even a, even a grasp of the significance of that, we'd understand that it's a much weightier announcement than Pac-Man got in the boxing ring. Seriously. So let's look at it together. Um, look, I'm going to assume... That, that, that we've all got a, a very minimal understanding of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. So if this is, you know, you know, a knowledge that you already acquired, please bear with me. You know, but I just want to paint the picture in case none of this is familiar to us. So if we know anything about the Old Testament, we know that lambs were sacrificed to deal with sin. Okay, to deal with sin. Sin is a falling short of God's standard. Every human, human sins against God. And the sacrificial system was to appease God's wrath against sin. That's what it's all about. Here's how it works. And follow with me. We'll have some slides bit by bit. And I'll try and explain. So humanity as a whole has broken God's commandment consistently. We do it over and over again. The net result of that is that it puts us at enmity with God. It separates us from God. But God, because of his great love for humanity, for the people he's created, makes a way for us to be in relationship with him, makes a way for us to be in fellowship with him. But it's only a temporary way. And we'll look at why in a minute, why the sacrificial system was just temporary. So it makes a temporary means of people, it's a means of grace to relate to him, to have his favor, to walk with him. It's quite complex, 
And so here's an abbreviated version of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It revolves around a temple, the Jerusalem temple. This is a, a reenactment or remodeling of the Jerusalem temple, Herod's temple, because Herod had it rebuilt, or it's named after him, at least. So it's Herod's temple, it's the Jerusalem temple, it's based around that. Prior to the temple, it used to be based around a marquee called the tabernacle. It started there, there was a mobile unit, but now, well, after that it became a permanent fixture, the temple. Within the temple, there was a place where animals were sacrificed for sin. And within the temple area, there was one area called the Holy of Holies that was separated from the rest of the temple area. It had a thick curtain protecting the innermost place, the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, there was an, there was an artifact, uh, a box, a chest. It's called the Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie, is based on it, believe it or not. It's called the Ark. The, old, the Ark was a rectangular object covered in gold. Okay? Within it, there were three things. There was the, the two tablets of stone that Moses had. There was Aaron's rod that budded. And there was the pot of manna kept to remind the Israelites how God had looked after them. They were inside in nothing else. Above it was what's called the mercy seat. It had two golden cherubims and the tips of their wings touched. It was there that a cloud would descend and it signified God's presence coming to his people to receive their sacrifice. Now, of all the sacrifices that happened in the temple, the Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was the most significant of the sacrifices. It's the holiest day in a Jewish calendar. And really, Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement really sums up, is the, the focal point, the apex of the sacrificial system, if you like. So here's how Yom Kippur worked. On it, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter and only on that day and only once a year and only with the blood of sacrificed animals. It was the only way he could get anywhere near God. Once a year. Okay. With the blood of animals as the high priest and him and him alone. Okay. When the New Testament talks about the church being priests of God, you, you have to understand what that means. It means that you and I stand as a high priest, although Jesus is the ultimate high priest, as a, as a symbol of that. And we enter the Holy of Holies. Does anybody know that you are this morning, right now, in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God with Jesus as our representative and him, his blood, as what makes it possible? We'll come to that in a short while. So the high priest, in order to enter, had to take off his normal priestly garments, which were holy in themselves, and had to put on special garments for this occasion. He would then take the necessary sacrificial animals, a bull for his own sin offering, two male goats for the sin offering of the people, one, one for himself, one for the people, and one that would release. And we're going to look at that shortly. Then, then he was slaughtered the bull for a sin offering. Before entering the Holy of Holies with the blood, he would create, using incense, a smoked 
area symbolizing the presence of God. He would create that. The high priest would then take some of the blood of the bull into the place and he would sprinkle the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies seven times with that blood. Then after that, lots were cast. The lots were cast to determine which of the two goats, which would be sacrificed and which would be the scapegoat. It's where that term comes from, scapegoat. The goat for the slaughter and the goat for the sin offering. Okay, the sin offering goat will be sacrificed and his blood taken into the Holy of Holies and applied to the mercy seat, the sin offering for the people. Cleansing was made then for the holy place. Okay, possibly with the bull, with the, the blood of the goat, not the goat, sorry, with the blood of the bull. Sin offering, a sprinkling was made. Next, outside the tent, the high priest would make atonement on the burnt offering altar. Then, after that, he would take the second goat, the one that would take the sins of the people. The hands would be laid to, to, to symbolize the transference of sins, and that goat would be released into the wild. Sometimes it was, it was, it was uh, pushed off a precipice for it to die quickly, but generally it was released to wander forever, and it was symbolizing the carrying away of the sins of the people as have and can you see the Im what the imagery was doing it was it was to wander away as far as it could go from the holy of holies symbolizing what was happening to the sins of the people that they were being taken from them as far away from the presence and the knowledge and the sight of god as possible okay the early sacrifices of the bull and the goats were then completed okay those who rendered those things that were worn and they were involved they were rendered unclean they had to then be put aside separately after all of this in addition there were sacrificed seven lambs this is where the lambs come in they were part of the sacrificial system now here's the thing that annual Yom Kippur day of atonement sacrifice was really the finale of the year that were the greatest sacrifice it symbolized a whole sacrificial industrial system that occurred in israel daily every single day there was the morning sacrifice there was the, the evening sacrifice lambs it was a lamb in the morning a lamb in the evening okay this occurred and then there were the special regular sacrifices the festival sacrifices every time there was a festival of some type there were more sacrifices it was such an industrial thing that sacrifices never ceased in Jerusalem they went on day and night day after day after day the stench of sacrifices never ceased these lights were to feel tangibly the impact of their sins and at the head of all these sacrifices if you like the, the poster boy of sacrifices, uh, the animal that, that was the animal of sacrifices was the lamb. The humble little lamb was the quintessential sacrificial animal. Numbers 28 tells us there about how he was to be. This was the offering made by fire that you are to present to the Lord, the two lambs, a year old without defect, the most perfect lamb 
within its fold, prepared one in the morning, one at twilight. But here's the thing. For all the industrialization of sacrifice in animals, for all the lambs, for all that blood, for all the process, the protocol, stringently, perfectly kept in fear, it didn't work. Not a single lamb that was slaughtered at the Jerusalem temple worked. And here's what I mean by that. It never, they never really and truly removed sin. They never truly dealt with sin. All those deaths and all that blood and sin was never truly atoned for. In fact, all those lambs ever really did for their deaths, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, were point to an ultimate and final sacrifice that did work. Here's what Hebrew tells us about those sacrifices. The fact that they never worked. Hebrews 10:11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. And listen to this. Here's what we're saying. Which can never take away sins. Do you hear that? Not a single lamb ever really took sins away, ever really appeased God's anger towards sin, ever really did anything concrete. Instead, they did do something because God ordered for it to be done. Instead, they appeased God's wrath on a temporary basis because they pointed forward to a better sacrifice. This is what they did, you see. Like an arrow, they looked ahead and in that sense, something was achieved. They had some purpose, though, although it wasn't to actually remove sin. And Hebrews 10, 12 tells us the purpose. Listen to this. But when, the, when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, one, his body on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. Can you see? what the arrow was, what the lambs pointed to, what they were about. Every single lamb, including the bull and the goats and everything else, pointed to Jesus. He is the sacrifice. He is the ultimate lamb. He is the one act of sacrifice that worked. That finally appeased God. We said last week, and it's true, and it stands today, and it's valid, that God is not angry with you. If you love Jesus, he will never again be angry with you. You're not coming to an angry God. You're not coming to a God who can ever be angered by you. And that's something, as Christians, we have to understand. You can never again anger him. Never. The worst sin you can imagine can never again make God angry towards you because all of his wrath, all of it, is stored up wrath for every sin, past, 
present and future was appeased on the cross. Jesus fully satisfies the wrath of God. Fully. Totally. And here it is. It's in Romans 3. Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, and this is cultic language. It's associated with temples and sacrifices. Who God set up, set forth rather, as a propitiation of his blood, or propitiation by his blood. It's a technical term. It simply means this, that Jesus' blood appeases God's wrath. Okay? There was a time when God was angry towards the sins of those he loved, but Jesus' blood propitiates or sets aside or removes, okay, the wrath of God towards those he loves. And the net consequence of that, and this is why you're coming to one who is not angry with you, no matter what you've done this week, okay, if you come here in the name of Jesus, with Jesus as your Lord, with, with Jesus as the him before whom you bring all your sins and confess them and trust in him for his mercy and forgiveness, then here's what he says about you. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, it's what the goat is about that was released. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. How far do you stand between the sins of last week and now in God's presence corporately. How far do you stand? As far as the east, which is east, whatever it is, is from the west. It's Isaiah 53, we read it earlier. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That offends God. But the Lord has laid on the lamb, the lamb, the iniquity of us all. And Hebrews underlines it in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Jesus' suffering and death for our sins was once and for all. He makes lasting, ongoing, perpetual, continual peace between us and our God. He brings an end to the temple and his sacrifices. And his death ensures, you see, his death ensures there be no more little lambs needing to be sacrificed. And for us it ensures the guilt and the condemnation that will follow it because of sin is completely done away with, ex extinguished, eliminated. The price paid for. It is the most remarkable and gracious, loving, costly thing God did it for us and it achieves the most incredible result our peace with our maker our salvation eternal life his presence with us forever and that's what John is declaring that's why we says that this announcement of when John the Baptist sees Jesus is so remarkable because he's declaring in those few words all of the truth and more that we've looked at together this morning. So John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. He is God's Lamb and He's at the centre of our salvation. You can see then, can't you, why Jesus is so paramount to Christianity. To undermine who He is and His achievement is to remove the very fabric or the rug from under the feet of our salvation. He is the only remedy for sin. Without Jesus, there is no being right with God. Without Jesus, we are still in our sins. Without Jesus, we stand condemned. Without Jesus, there's no heaven. Without Jesus, we're lost. And there's a little more being said here. He's the Lamb of God, yes, and there's something more in that, because he's the Lamb of God in, in a very personal costly sense. Listen to, listen to this in verse 34. I have seen testify that this is the Son of God. So can you see what's being said here? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God in the sense that he is the Son of God. He's God's own. He's what belongs to God. He's who is one with God. The same substance who is in very essence God, who's dwelt with him forever. It's Jesus who the Father loves, a mutual love relationship that's existed for all of eternity. And it's this Son, with all the impact of that, of giving up something so precious and so dear and so close, that God does for us, you see. The Lamb of God is the Son of God. And that's put better nowhere else in Scripture than in the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Christian, you can never doubt God's love for you when you consider the Son that God gave up for you. We can never accuse him of not caring, of being indifferent or absent. God is never absent. He's always present. He loves you. He gave up his son for you. That's what you mean to him. And so if you return to our passage again, back to verse 29, I hope it makes a bit more sense to you now. Listen, look. John says when he saw Jesus, as he makes his announcement, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with his two, with his two disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Jesus is an end to all sacrifices. He is the final lamb that God receives and he is the one and only lamb who truly atoned for our sin, fully appeased God's wrath and fully put us at the receiving end of the love of God. So what do we do with this? What does it mean in practical terms? That when the rubber hits the road, what does this mean for us? Well, Hebrews 10 again. Let me take you there again. Here's what it means to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place 
by the blood of Jesus, not of lambs or goats or bulls, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, the curtain that separated the, the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, from peoples, saying that we can't enter. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you see the practical application? Is that we're to come. We're not to stay away from him. We're not to stay away from church, from prayer, from his word, from walking with him, from being in communion with him. For f we're not to fear him and shy away. We're not to hide. We're not to wander off AWOL, as it were. Because of what Jesus has done, because God responds to you in grace and love, we're to come to him, draw near to him, should never fear to come before God in Jesus' name. And here's the thing. Yes, it's true. As Christians, we go on committing sins. That's not a good thing and it's something that we shun. But the truth and the reality of our daily walk is, is that we fail. We let him down. We, we break commitments that we, we said we'd make. We go astray. We do that which we know is wrong. And here's what scripture tells us. It's not a license to sin. But nevertheless, it's, it's God's assurance that no sin, past, present, future, however big, uh, however, whatever the scale of it, the depth of it, the gravity of it, no matter the sin, if you love Jesus and in relationship with him, this is his word to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Christian, when we come before him, whether or not we are aware of it or not, we come with the baggage of sins committed. Often we're not aware of it, sometimes we are. But however we come, let us approach him on every occasion in Jesus' name, calling on the blood of that lamb to cleanse us. And let us receive his forgiveness and his mercy and know that we stand before him always spotless, always in his favour, never at odds with him, always regarded as his sons and daughters, always seen through the lens of Jesus' righteousness, always welcome, always loved, always with his companionship and fellowship with us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's incredible, isn't it? That's your reality, Christian. That's what Jesus has done for you. Walk then in the light and liberty of that. Walk closely with him. Go now in Jesus' name.